0: Well, that is a beautiful thing to see. And hey, was it not a beautiful thing to hear today? A drummer. Praise God. So grateful for that, that God gives people gifts and uh, people use those gifts to glorify him. And uh, I think of that, I've mentioned this before, but you know, all those references to, in the Psalms, to clanging cymbals and loud noises, uh. Those were all um, different instruments that, that came from the, the pagan world around Jerusalem. None of the instruments listed in, in, in the Psalms there are from Jerusalem. And yet they were taken by God's people and utilized for his glory, for his praise. And that's, that's fun to see. Uh, another thing that I'm grateful to be able to report is uh, this past week I did uh, defend my thesis and it got approved and I'm done. So praise God. Thank you. Praise the Lord for that. Um, And thank you, church family, for your ongoing prayers and support and just steadfastness uh, with me on many, many levels. Uh, So grateful for a church family that that encourages its pastors to grow. And uh, um, we feel very loved by you already. Um, So uh, very, very touched um, by this church's desire to care for those that, by God's grace, try to care for her. And so we want to thank you for that. I don't know how you feel about being lost, but personally, I do not like it. Not a fan of being lost. And it might surprise you. I've been lost many times. Uh, You can actually ask Janet about that sometime if you want, because it happens. It happens. But there's a guy, his name is Michael Bond. He's an expert in the traumatic subject of lostness. So in other words, he talks about when this happens to people and how this is a fear of being lost that runs really deep uh, in our psyche and also in our culture. And as he writes about it, he puts it like this. He says, children lost in the woods is a common motif in modern fairy tales and in ancient mythology. Usually in fiction, there's some kind of redemption. Snow White's rescued by the dwarves, and even in Hansel and Gretel, facing certain doom in the gingerbread house, they find their way home. Reality is often more grim. During the 18th and 19th centuries, getting lost was one of the most common causes of death among children of European settlers in the North American wilderness. And uh, as we kind of look at that, we can understand why that would be. They didn't have GPS. They didn't have, you know, all those different things, obviously. And it was, it was traumatic. It was, it was dangerous. Uh, there's some more, another science researcher, Dr. Jan Suman, who actually used a GPS monitor to, vo- to track several volunteers as part of an experiment. And they tried to walk in a straight line without any tech at all through uh, Germany's beanwalled forest and also the Sahara Desert. And here's what they learned. When the clouds were obstructing the sun, errors would add up super quick. And small little deviations, of course, resulted in, in, in massive changes in direction. Most often, they ended up walking in circles, and uh, what they discovered is with no external cues to help them, people will typically not travel more than 100 meters from their starting position regardless of how long they walk. So if you don't have guidance and you're lost and there's no, nothing to give yourself some sort of bearing on where you're going, you're essentially going to walk in a circle. That's what's going to happen. That says a lot about us as human beings and our spatial system and, and really what it requires uh, of us to kind of anchor ourselves to our surroundings and know where we're going. Because without landmarks, without boundaries, um, the truth is our brains by themselves cannot give us true direction. And of course, this is even more disastrous when we think about our spiritual walk becoming disoriented or misdirected or darkened, or when we just think of relying on ourselves to walk a straight path. Because frankly, brothers and sisters, it doesn't happen. We're, We're we're deceiving ourselves if we think it does. Uh, when we are not walking according to the light that God gives us in his word, uh, we end up essentially going in circles, working hard, trying hard, and going nowhere and wondering why we end up in the same place over and over and over again. And so often when when the truth of God and, and what he's accomplished as described for us in the scriptures, when it becomes diluted in our minds, We think we're following him. We might even profess to be following him, but sometimes we're not. We can get sidetracked easily because the only accurate guide that we have is God's word. And when its light becomes less clear in our minds, our orientation to our surroundings become distorted. They become confused and and it affects how we live. And as the Bible would call that not walking in the light, We're not walking in the light when God's character becomes reduced in our minds to something that's more manageable or more appealing to our modern sensibilities. Uh, We lose the riveting, stirring, awe-filled sense of his majesty and his glory. We're not walking in the light when when the, the reality of our need for God's holy wrath to be appeased becomes sort of a distant thing to us. And instead, for many, we'd rather have our practical needs met. You know, we call them real needs. Show me how to live better. Show me how to get my breakthrough. Show me how to be more successful as this, that, or the other thing. Uh, when that becomes our, our preoccupation, we're not walking in the light anymore. We're not walking in the light when we would rather uh, kind of have sort of a, a way in which I'm living today, right now, with everything I feel like I want coming towards me. I want God to be a life coach rather than the sovereign ruler over all things. And so we ignore, we downplay our sin and, and, and we start distorting our minds into thinking that yeah, the real problem that we have is, is, is uh, I'm just not living up to my potential. These kinds of spiritual problems are not new. The Apostle John confronted many similar false teachings that assaulted the first century church. There were these so-called teachers that claimed to be walking in the light. But their lives betrayed a different reality. They were in fact walking in darkness, and so he clearly confronts this error in First John chapter one, uh, verses five through chapter two, verse two. So if you'd open there right now, and uh, in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along? First John began with verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would take your word now and that you would apply it to us, that your spirit would, would utilize uh, this truth that he's penned to change us from the inside. If there are those amongst us here today who find themselves walking in the darkness, Lord, we pray that we would walk in the light, that we would run to you, and that you would take even this time together to call us to that place. We ask that you'd be glorified as you work among us now in Jesus' name the risen king. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Amen. That's right. As we look at this passage today, we're going to look at it in light of two questions. First question would be, why do those in true fellowship walk in the light? And then the next question will be, how can we tell if we're walking in the light? So first question, why do those in true fellowship walk in the light? And, and the answer is very clear. The answer is because God is light. That's why. Uh, why is John using this light-dark contrast? Well, false teachers had gone through great efforts to say, hey, we're genuine. We're real. And, 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 and because of that, they were saying, yeah, we're giving you the real deal. It's the secret knowledge. And, and, and there was sort of this... Um, ancient philosophies that would be circling through. And people back at that time loved clinging on to those philosophies. Uh, uh, one was monism. That was a big deal. and That was claiming that everything is one. There's evil and good, but at the core, they're all one element. You know, everything is one. One is everything. We see that today in different forms. Uh, the other idea back at that time was dualism. That was the opposite of monism. And, and that was talking about how there is a good and there's evil and they're kind of equally powerful and they're opposed to one another. And so, uh, you know, the, you can kind of see that today. There's like the yin and yang concept. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know, there's the force. You know, the force There's the dark side, the light side. They're equal. They're battling each other, that kind of a thing. And uh, that would sometimes be brought into the church uh, via some of these Gnostic teachings. The, the idea that God was, um, you know, kind of there in, in conflict with evil. And they're both vying for prominence. And, and there's a battle of sorts. And uh, there's two ultimate forces kind of a thing. But, but when Gnosticism came through, it was eventually kind of bringing that dichotomy of the dualism to the physical and the spiritual. And we talked about that a bit last week. Uh, so these, these early philosophies are coming along, and they're saying these different things. And, and so now the, the thing that comes up is light and dark. How does that work? As the Gnostics were saying, hey, we're bringing light, we're bringing knowledge, we're bringing truth, that's secret— hey, you, come here, listen to me, I'll give you the real stuff. Uh, Right here, what John does is he takes that concept of light and knowledge and these things and brings it now well within the context of a biblical gospel-centered framework. And so he begins by saying this, God is light. And we've got to deal with that. Why? Because you're claiming to have fellowship with him, but the reality is, if God is really light, we've got a problem. We've got a problem, because we are sinners, and there's a vast gap, a vast chasm, a vast difference. How are we going to deal with that problem? And so Paul brings or I'm sorry, so John brings up this, this beautiful truth that God is light. Uh, you'll notice he's, he's saying, well, this is the message we've heard and we proclaimed to you. Last week he was talking about that. Again, this message I received, I didn't make this thing up. I, I was given it by God himself, by the Lord Jesus. And now I'm declaring it. And when we think of God as being light, we're wondering, you know, again, what, what's he talking about here? Well, well, light in the scriptures are really used in two ways. One is the idea of truth, So throughout the scriptures, the truth of God, truth about God, the declaration of the word of God is light. Your your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Uh, There's several times that the Bible would describe God's truth that way. But the other way that light is used is also just to describe God as perfectly holy, the holy one. Uh, Paul will write in 1 Timothy 6 that God lives in unapproachable light. We hear in in the book of Habakkuk as the prophet cries out about the evil that surrounds him and he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why? Because God is holy. There's there's that way in which morally and spiritually God is not not in any way sullied or dirty. Uh, The idea of holiness is to be completely other than. So God is apart from us. He is separate from us. He is not uh, dirtied or sullied by sin because he is inherently holy, 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 as the prophet Isaiah says. So because of that, we see purity. We see truth. We see integrity. We see the light of illumination, how he brings light to the darkness. We see guidance. We also see the idea of care, Comfort, warmth, compassion. All these things are, are within this statement. And, and it's, it's, it is striking. What, you know, why, doesn't, why doesn't John say here, God is holy? You know, he could just say that. But he's utilizing the Gnostics terminology on them. Does that make sense? They're the ones talking about light. It's like, oh, you want to see light? I'll show you light. There's a vast contrast between our sin and our God who is pure. And that's why it's so emphatic. Notice he says here at the end of verse five, look at it, it says, there is in him no darkness at all, none. I don't know that we can actually comprehend that in our current condition. Because everything we see around us is sin. It's tainted by sin. It's polluted in some way. And so when, when John says there is no darkness at all he's he's using actually in Greek the double negative so this is very very strong in his statement here and though we might try to grasp it completely i don't think we can i think this this statement alone should just bring us to the place of awe and wonder and joy tells us clearly that, that God is not like us. And all of our attempts to make him like us are really pulling him down, dragging him down into something more manageable, something that we would, would feel more comfortable with. But when we see God's holiness more and more, it, it, it actually rocks us from the inside. Now you think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he, when he says, you know, he saw the Lord of hosts in the temple And what does he do? He says, woe is me. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord of hosts. To see God in his holiness undid him. And I think that's where we need to be. We need to recover that. Because the, the, the stark contrast between the holy, holy, holy God and us as sinners is so vast. And then the question comes, well then, How do we have fellowship with him? How do we have fellowship with him in light of our sin? How can that happen? And that's what John is going after here. Because these teachers are claiming to have fellowship with him, but they're not considering God as light in whom there is no darkness at all. That's not how they see God. And that allows them to kind of have a false fellowship. You know? Yeah, I know God. I kind of know God. I kind of have fellowship with him. I know some secret things about him that you don't know. But John's going to go after them. Because he says here in the next verse, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. You can say you have fellowship with him. But if you're walking in darkness, you don't. Why? Because he is light. I mean, it's patently absurd to think God is light. I'm walking with him, but I'm in darkness. It doesn't work. It can't happen. And that brings us to our, our next question. Well, Not only is it important to see that those who are in true fellowship walk in the light because God is light. But secondly, the question we need to ask is, how can we tell if we're walking in the light? How do we know? And, and Jesus answers, or sorry, John answers these questions with a series of contrasts. He, he ends up showing throughout this time, what does it look like to walk in darkness? What does it look like to walk in light? And so we'll be walking through these contrasts together But when you think about walking in darkness or walking in light, the first thing we see is those who walk in darkness grow comfortable with sin. Those who walk in light grow convicted of sin. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. So notice, here they they are. They say, yeah, we, we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. In other words, they're not walking a pure life. They're not walking a life of growing obedience. Instead, it's like, yeah, well, I sin. We, we mentioned it last week. You know, part of the thing with the, that dualism that we were talking about is that, well, the body's evil, but the spirit's good. So if my body does something that's evil, it's not me. Okay? So yeah, I, I, I blew up in anger or I've engaged in sexually immoral activity or I ended up, uh, you know, going out and just, you know, um, abusing some form of substance, some sort of, you know, strange ritual at the Artemis' temple. Uh, You know, all these first century activities were happening within the pagan world and these people were saying, hey, it's not me doing it. I'm not, I'm not really doing that. It's it's my body. My spirit and the body don't connect at all. And John's point is saying, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. As a matter of fact, verse 7 If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, now we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's the problem. I have sin, I need it dealt with. How can that happen? Sin is the idea of missing the mark. The Bible describes it as sometimes crossing over a boundary that's been placed before you. Sometimes the Bible describes sin as being a perversity, something that's twisted. Maybe, maybe, you know, you've, you've gone uh, archery kind of shooting before and you've missed the target every time. By the way, that would be me at archery. I miss it pretty much every time. But that is the idea of sin. Now, there's the target and I'm off. And so this false claim they, were, they, they made was, yeah, I have fellowship with God and yet I'm pretty comfortable maintaining my life in ways that don't honor him. Because it's really not me, or they have the excuse, or whatever it would be. And, and for us, we sit here, and we go, yeah, that's really, that's lame. Nah, we wouldn't do that, right? That, that's, that's something that's, uh, that's unwise. That's something that's foolish, that you would think, you know, your body's doing something, but you're not doing it. Come on. And yet, are there times when you find yourself growing more comfortable with sin? Are there times in, in, in your life when, when things that perhaps used to really, really cause you to go, oh man, I need to turn from that. I need to repent of that. I need to ask God's forgiveness for that. And then slowly over time, it's just sort of become more normal? And now maybe you don't even notice it at all? We, we need to be careful. It's easy to grow comfortable with sin. Sometimes the the excuse is, "Ah, that's just the way that I am. Sometimes it's, well, you know what they did to me? So they deserved it. But we need to be careful, brothers and sisters, that we are not growing more comfortable with sin. No, when we see God, we see his holiness, we see who he is, when we're exposed to his truth and the word, what happens is we become more convicted of our sin, Um, we start to see it more often in the light of who he is, in the light of his word and in the light of his calling on our lives. Now, by the way, let's be really careful here. Verse seven makes it very, very, very important and very, very um, absolutely crystal clear that he is not saying, therefore be sinless. Walking in the light is being sinless. No, no. If that was the case, you wouldn't need to be cleansed of sin. So that certainly can't be what he's talking about. Now, instead, he's he's addressing this idea that morality has no bearing on our walk with God. That's what he's going after, and he's saying here those two things: your walk with God and claiming to be in Him. They go together the way we live demonstrates our life in Christ. It shows it. And so a a true Christian is going to find that spotlight of God's word on their hearts and he or she is going to want to turn away from sin. There's gonna be conviction. There's gonna be repentance. There's gonna be a desire to walk in a new way. And, and, And he's saying here, truth then cannot simply be a matter of what we say. It can't be just a mere profession. There needs to be a genuine way in which we put that into practice every day. And so for these people claiming, you know, gnosis or special knowledge, they were not the same thing. There was a divorce there between profession and living. So the question would be, again, are we walking in the light? Are we walking in such a way where rather than becoming more comfortable with sin, we're actually being convicted of it more? There's a beautiful thing here in that at the end of verse seven, he says, his son cleanses us or washes us. Uh, there was soap used earlier today with the kids. That's great. I, uh, Andrew, I, I like the soap. Because um, it's right. It's exactly what he's saying here. Jesus cleanses. He washes. He does that. But he does so in a continuous, ongoing way. Notice it's, he cleanses us from not our previous sins or from some sins, it's from all of our sin. So there is an ongoing, and by the way, the word purify there is in the present tense. So it's continuous, ongoing purification that takes place day by day. Um, It's something that we need day by day. It's available to us all the time. It's one of the beautiful things about what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So again, those who walk in darkness grow comfortable with sin. Those who walk in the light grow convicted of sin. Are you becoming more sensitive to sin in your life? The next thing we would see is this. Those who walk in darkness deny sin, while those who walk in the light confess sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, This is the person that's just essentially saying, I don't have sin. I do not have indwelling sin. That's not me. I don't battle with it. I don't fight with it. It's just not there. And uh, it's interesting how the deception is is moving progressively, right? Notice in verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. So in verse six, we're lying. In verse eight, we've gone from lying to other people. Now we're deceiving ourselves. Now we're lying to us. There's a progression there. So this ongoing deception outward now becomes, now I'm really convincing myself of this thing. And uh, I don't have to fight sin within me anymore. In contrast, he says, if we confess our sins, there are beautiful things that happen. And to confess really does mean to agree with God about something. So God has said this thing is wrong. It is sin. And therefore, I am agreeing with him and I'm saying, yes, I have, I have not honored you in the way I've spoken, in the way I've thought, in the way I've, I've dealt with other people in, in my own uh, mind. Thoughts, actions, words, deeds. And so to confess is saying, I'm agreeing with you, God, and I'm confessing this. And Now, is, is it to God who's being confessed to? Is it to others? John doesn't clarify that here. I think we have passages in Scripture that talk about that, that talk about us going to God in confession. And other times, uh, the book of James says, confess your sins to one another. Now, that's important too. There's relationships together that we're praying for one another. In in this ongoing battle with indwelling sin, which is a part of the Christian life. But again, when he refers to cleansing here, it is a present tense, ongoing cleansing that happens. It's not just a one time deal. Our sins are richly pardoned in Christ as we confess them, our sins are daily pardoned in Christ as we confess them. And, and again, notice it's cleansing us from how much of our unrighteousness? All of it. Do you ever feel like, yeah, it's almost all of it, but there's this one sin. There's this one sin, Now he doesn't cleanse me from that one. Maybe it's something that you struggle with repeatedly. Maybe it's something that you just feel like it's beyond the pale of God's grace. But here he's saying, no, it's all of it every sin, any way in which your life contradicts or goes against God's desire, God's law, when confessed to him as those who's in, someone who's in Jesus, who's who's received Jesus and received his work on the cross and has received forgiveness from him by confessing their sin to him, you receive that cleansing completely and fully in every way. And that's something that, that I think, uh, again, we don't see God's holiness enough. We don't see the depths of our sin enough. And then what happens is we don't see the radical nature of forgiveness enough. We don't grasp what God has done by rescuing us. And uh, I think one way to see that is to consider David, for example. Go ahead, if you would, and, and turn uh, back to Second Samuel uh, verses, or chapters 11 and 12. Maybe you'll recall that, that area of scripture. That's when uh, David committed his, probably one of the most grievous sins of his whole life that's recorded in scripture in terms of with Bathsheba. Verse 11 begins where it happened in the spring in the time of the kings to go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. David had been very successful as a military leader. He didn't feel like he had to, you know, get out there and fight much anymore, and he kind of left it to his his uh, commanders under him, and and so he finds himself kind of successful and relaxing at home. Verse two. Now, when evening came, David rose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a beautiful woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, "Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of?" Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And you're familiar with the story. David ends up sending for her. And, and uh, David ends up committing adultery with her. And then she sends back to him and says, I am pregnant. And David's gone, Uh oh. I can get caught on this thing. So what does he do? He has her husband, who is a loyal soldier in his army, has him come home. And he's hoping he'll come home and spend time with his wife, right, in the hopes of, of covering up that sin. But instead, what happens? Your eyes, like, how can I possibly go in and be with my wife when the men are out there battling? And he just just stayed first in the, in the area of the, of the palace, and then David's like, go home. And so he kind of slept on his own porch, but he would not celebrate or or be with her in any way. And then David resorts to something even more wicked. He realizes that's not going to work. And so he ends up sending uh, Uriah back, back to the battlefield. And he gives Joab, his commander, a message. Basically saying, I want you to put him in the line. I want you to go closer to the area of danger to attack. And I want everyone to withdraw so that what will happen will happen. Uh, deliberately plotting his, his death. And um, Joab sends word back to David later and basically says, this is what happened. He gave him the lowdown of the battle and, and we were close to the wall of the city. And, and Joab almost anticipates David like, hey, why'd you get so close to the wall thing? And then he says, and you're right, the Hittite is dead at the end of the message. And David goes, Huh. And so we find at the end of, end of chapter 11 that look at the last sentence in verse 27. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. But from what we can tell, David just kind of went on with life until Nathan the prophet arrives. And when, when Nathan comes to him, the prophet, look at chapter 12, verse 1. This is what he says. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished and grew up together with him and his children. And it would eat his bread and drink his cup and lie in his bosom, and he was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare the wayfarer for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger bur- burned greatly against the man. So D- David hears this, this account, and he cannot believe that this evil could happen. And he responds in anger. He says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. So here's the story of a guy who took someone's beautiful ewe lamb and, and basically killed it to feed a guest. And then David goes on in verse 6 and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And then here's the moment. Verse 7 Nathan then said to David, You are the man. That's you. And he goes on. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It's I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And he goes on to say, I've blessed you with all these things. I've given you all these things. Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his sight? Literally, why are you regarding with contempt what God has given you? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. There's that word again. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And David would suffer the consequence of that. Uh, There would be conflict in his home and in his family uh, from, from that time on. Essentially, the kingdom would actually end up being divided because of this sin, ultimately. There were other sins that led to that too, from his son Solomon. But all that to say, this started off the 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 mass breakups within and, and the destructiveness in his own household. To regard with contempt, it's interesting. David David actually, in this time, saw God's grace, and rather than receiving God's grace, in many ways he despised God's grace in his life. He 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 had not yet learned what it was to receive what God's grace had given him and also to receive what God's grace had not given him and so he reached out farther to take for himself that which God had not given him I think there's a lot of lessons for us in that have we received what God's grace has given us and are we receiving what God's grace has not given us but when it comes to this idea of confessing sin, you think of a sin like this, you're going, man, what's, what's David to do? Well, go ahead now and turn, if you would, to Psalm 51. Because we find out what confession is. The superscription in the psalm is a good indicator of what's happening uh, when, the, when this psalm was written. And notice what it says. For the choir director, a psalm of David with Nathan, when when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. After he committed adultery and murder to cover up adultery. This is David's confession. And look at what he says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Uh, You'll notice here those three terms being used for sin, we referred to them earlier. He's got missing the mark present here. He's got overstepping a line. He's got perversion of iniquity, twisting. And he's saying, Lord, because of your loving kindness, because of your steadfast love, forgive me. He goes on, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Now, when he says you and you alone, I have sinned before or I've sinned before you only, he's not saying his his sin wasn't against anybody else. What he's saying there is, Lord, you are the one who has graced me with life and all things. And the main thing I have done is I have offended you. In this, yes, there's the, there's the horizontal element as well. He's not denying that. But he's saying that that's, that's the main thing. He goes on to describe his background, how I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me and you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you you will make me know wisdom. And now he asks for it. Verse seven, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I don't know. You think about that, you're going, wait a minute. Murder, adultery, the treachery, the abuse of power, all of those things. And what is he saying? He's confessing that and he's saying, you can cleanse that, Lord. You can cleanse that. Verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out, and there's that word again, all my iniquities. He goes on from there to describe the inner working of God. in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Notice it's not his righteousness, it's your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, that my mouth may declare your praise. So you can see what's happening here. He's asking him to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. And now, if we go back to 1 John, that's exactly what John's describing here. I think the question is do we see sin? And its depths, do we see God's holiness and its heights? And do we, through Christ, confess our sin to Him and receive full forgiveness? John's language here is is very, very similar in that it's cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The sins that are pardoned are pardoned. And they're pardoned in an ongoing way because of the vast greatness of Jesus' sacrifice. Uh, Jesus used the same type of idea when he washed the disciples' feet in the upper room. Remember that? Peter says, Hey, don't don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. And Jesus says, Hey, you're clean. In other words, you've come to me, you're rescued, you're saved. But your feet are dirty. So here, John is talking about that. It's, it's not that initial cleansing that happens when you first come to Christ. That, that's a real thing that happens. That purification happens, that removal of sin. But this is the ongoing daily need for that. Uh, you, m- you might think of this picture, if, you know, if you've been a parent, uh, maybe you're about to go somewhere with your kids and you put on them, maybe they're three or four years old and they put on like the outfit. You know, the outfit that you've washed, the outfit that maybe, maybe someone's ironed that shirt, you know, and it's gone on the kid and you specifically say to them, "Hey, before we leave, do not go play outside. <laughs> Whatever you do, please don't." And of course, what do they have this deep longing to do the minute you say that? They want to go play outside. And maybe it's muddy out there, and next thing you know, you're looking at a kid in that shirt and those pants and they are just covered with mud. And maybe that kid comes in crying even, "Mom or dad, I'm so sorry I fell. I got in the mud. I'm sorry." What's the parent going to say? I should say this. What's the parent going to say in their most spiritual moments? (laughs) Put it that way. Yeah. What's the parent going to say? Well, they're going to say, oh, I I forgive you. There are consequences. You're going to have to do this and this, but come here right now. I forgive you. I love you. But I doubt you're going to take that kiddo to the event looking like that, right? (laughs) I'm thinking you're probably going to take those clothes and wash them real fast. Maybe it's a change of outfit or something. The point would be, you're going to clean what's, what's been dirtied. And that's what God does. God's saying to you, I'm going to take care of your guilt. You are no longer guilty. But I'm also going to take care of the stain of your sin. And I'm going to cleanse it and wash it away. And it's not just because I'm sweeping it under the rug. It's not because I'm not dealing with things in a real way. No, now, if we confess our sin, you'll notice it is he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How can that be just? How is it righteous or right? That's because Jesus came and took our place. He lived that perfect life. God's justice was poured out in full on Christ on the cross. And so it's a, an act of justice and an act of mercy. Mercy in the same moment. So those who walk in darkness grow comfortable with sin. Those who walk in light grow convicted of sin. Uh, Those who walk in darkness deny sin. Those who walk in the light confess sin. Lastly, we see those who walk in darkness, they actually slander Christ. While those who walk in the light cherish Christ. Christ. Well, what do we mean by slandering Christ? Well, look again, here it is. If we say we have not sinned, by the way, slightly different from the earlier statement, the first statement said, well, I don't have any sin. This statement is more like, I don't commit sins. I, I might have some of me, but I don't do them. I don't ever commit a sin anymore. And uh, again, I've actually had people say that to me in, in you know, maybe recent years. You know, They come to Jesus and like, yeah, I don't sin anymore. And I think I've mentioned before, I've said, wow, what you just did was a sin right there. That was... Because you're not telling the truth right now. And then they're like, no, really, I don't. And I'm like, are you married? <laughs> yeah. Can I talk to your wife? <laughs> no. Okay, well, she might have something to say about that, buddy. Uh, but the thing is, this, this is the idea of I don't sin anymore. But notice this. We make him a liar. Uh, the deception has grown. Verse 6 was, "You lie, we lie, don't practice the truth in the darkness. Uh, And then later we found that we're deceiving ourselves in verse 8. And now in verse 10, we're not just doing that. We're actually calling God a liar. If we claim to not have sin, we are saying, God, you're you're a liar. And that's slandering Christ. That's saying something untrue about him. God's basically saying, if you're going to say that untrue thing about yourself, that you're not a sinner, you're also saying something untrue about me. And that is That I haven't told you the truth because you know what I say? I say you're a sinner. And I'm God. And I'm not lying. Um, it's interesting because the term liar is actually placed forward in the sentence, so it's very again emphatic. You're not just lying, you're not just deceiving yourselves. Now you're actually calling God a liar. And so the, the command here is stop calling God a liar by saying you don't commit sin. And again, we, we, we might think that would be foolish to say that. There might be a way in which we would look at that and think that's so far away from us. Okay, well, are we ready, ready and willing to admit our sin when it does come clear to us? Are, are we quick to confess our sin in that moment? Or, or, or is this more of a, no, not really. That wasn't actually a sin. Maybe it was kind of a sin. But no, when God's conviction comes, are we going, no, I need that. Lord, thank you. What is your disposition toward conviction? Notice he says here, there's a solution to this problem in, verses, in chapter two, verses one and two. My little children, that's an expression of tenderness, of care, of love. Love. I love how John does that. He just goes right, he's he's confronting people and then he goes right from that into my dear little children, those whom I love with a deep affection. I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. That's his pastoral desire. I, I long that you would not sin. However, if anyone sins, meaning as believers who love the Lord and walk with him, we are going to face a battle with ongoing indwelling sin. And he says, my children, I love you. I'm writing so you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, you remember something. And you remember it very clearly, very clearly. We have an advocate. What's an advocate? Literally, someone called alongside to help. Sometimes that term would be used in a courtroom for someone who is like an attorney. Someone who's there to argue your case. Notice who this advocate is. We have an advocate with the Father, and it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's Jesus, whose name means God saves. Christ, he's the messianic one, the one that was sent to accomplish this salvation, and he is the, there's a definite article there, he is the one who is perfectly righteous. He can argue this case. Why? Because in an ongoing, continuous way, he is before the Father, and he is saying, Father, yes, this is, for example, Chris. Yes, he is a one who has sinned. Again, I am pleading my righteousness in his place because I died for that sin on the cross. Faithful, righteous, ongoing pleading in our place. That's what Jesus does. And that is astounding. That is available all the time for those who are in Him. So, those who walk in the light, we dare not deny our, our, our sinful battle, we dare not deny our sinful acts. We need to make it a practice that we confess our sins, that we bring it to the light, that we walk in the light, that we may be forgiven and cleansed, that we receive that cleansing. And remember that this is because of who Jesus is and we cherish Jesus. And so by cherishing Jesus, what do we do? We run to him. We run to the advocate. And also we rest in him. Look at verse two. Why? Because he himself is the propitiation for our sins. What's he mean by that? A propitiation is a, um, when someone feels propitious towards something, it means that they're pleased. We don't use that word very much anymore, but that's what it means. And so here, a propitiation is something given to someone to take them from a state of anger to, being of, to the state of being pleased. It's a gift that appeases wrath. And that's what Jesus is. He's not just the advocate. He's also the gift because he's also the sacrifice. And so he himself is this gift that appeases God's wrath. And we look at that and we go, how can that even be? Well, unless we see that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, unless we see that we're sinners, we don't see a need for this advocate, this propitiation. That's what the false teachers were doing in John's time. That's what many do today. That's what we fall into by by not seeing the light clearly and walking in it clearly. We can slip into that idea. But this is a amazing, radical, absolute life-altering frame of reference altering reality whereby Jesus himself offers himself as this gift to appease God's wrath so that God's wrath is not anymore against sinners who turn to Jesus by faith. Where are you today? Have you come to Christ by faith? Have you received his gift of salvation? And are you now in the light, forgiven, covered by his blood Jesus is the advocate, the righteous one, the gift that appeases God's wrath. He alone can appear before a holy God because he alone meets God's righteous standard. He pleads his own righteousness that we can be forgiven based on his perfectly righteous actions. So when he says at the end of this, he's also Propitiation not only for us but also for those of the whole world. That has caused a lot of discussion. I, I don't have time to go into it all completely, but I, I will just frame it up for us. Uh, some would say this is universalism. See, everyone's going to be saved no matter what. Whole world, we're done. Yeah, that's not what he's saying. Uh, by the way, the entire rest of the book of First John makes that clear. What, G, what John said earlier makes it clear. If we walk in the darkness, we lie. We're not walking in the truth. If we walk in the light, his blood cleanses us from all sin. It's obviously not everybody. Uh, some have taken this to say, no, it's not the whole world. It's just the world of the elect. And, uh, and the problem with that position would be uh, that there's nothing in the language around it to qualify in that way. It doesn't say of the elect anywhere. It literally says of the world. And when you look at that in the Greek, it, it means the world. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's the whole world. But then the question is, well, then what's he talking about? How does this work? How can this actually be? Um, and I think, I think we find the answer in understanding this. The Bible describes for us both saving grace and common grace. Those are both brought out in various places in Scripture. Saving grace is the grace of Ephesians 2, right? You were, you were dead. God made you alive. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. Um, but common grace instead is sort of the way that, that God blesses and cares for the universe as a whole out of his mercy. And so we would see that, for example, in Matthew 5, when Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See what's happening there? He he blesses righteous and unrighteous. He sends uh, many blessings upon the evil and the good. And that's common grace to all, to, to the world. Uh, we find that also in the same uh, way in Acts 14. In the town of Lystra, Paul is preaching, and he says this, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Right? So we find there, again, that part of Christ's supremacy over the whole universe, over all things, is that he is the creator of all. He is the sustainer of all. From from the largest galaxy to the smallest quark, he he holds everything together. And so as he blesses the world with common grace, what we would see in this passage is that that common grace had to be purchased just as much as saving grace had to be purchased by Christ. Uh, His work on the cross did that. So... um, you know, God, common grace, we see it uh, in the physical realm where unbelievers and believers continue to live in the world. You know, unbelievers um, enjoy p- family and food and, and, and just many of God's blessings. And, uh, and we see it in many other areas from the creative realm. You, know, you think of music and, and the arts. You, you think of um, the beautiful sunset that you can enjoy. All these things, God just blesses everyone. Well, that Common grace blessing had to be paid for just as much as saving grace had to be paid for. Because God's perfectly just. And I believe this passage would say that Jesus paid for that. So that's what he's talking about there. Again, back to our questions. Why do those in true fellowship walk in the light? Because God's in the light. How can we tell if we're walking in the light? Well,. Are we growing comfortable with sin or are we growing convicted of sin? Are we denying sin? or Are we confessing sin? Um, Are we slandering Christ or instead are we truly and in every way coming to Jesus with great joy? Do we cherish him? Where are we at? Uh, We're gonna have a time to sing about this And then we're going to enjoy the Lord's table together.